Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. If this is your first time, special welcome to you. We are so glad you're here. And I hope that you take uh, Adam's offer up by filling out the red card. We'd love to hear from you in that way. My name is Joel, uh, and I'm happy to be with you guys today. I'm really excited. We're in the middle of a series called Life Is. And throughout this series, we just started last week, we've been saying there are different perspectives about what life is. And so I got some quotes to kind of get your brain going about what is life. The first one is this, life is 10% what happens to us and 90% of how we react to it, right? Amen? Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans, right? You're like, life happens and I can't do anything else about it. Life is real simple, but we insist on making it complicated, Confucius said. Hey, life is simple. Yeah, I guess so. The last one, From a theologian, mastermind, Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. Amen. Everybody has a philosophy of life. Okay, everybody does. And we, throughout this series, are looking at what is life all about. And we're honing into a particular chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. And we're looking at Paul. He wrote to this church, the church in Rome. He's saying, what is life all about as we look at this chapter? And last week we started, and we charted in uh, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Adam did a great job at navigating that. We're going to navigate 12 through 17 today. But this is what we're saying. When you attach your life to Jesus, that is when you live life to its fullest. And we're looking at what does it mean to attach our life to Jesus? What is Paul talking about throughout this passage? Last week, this is what Adam said. He said, life is freedom. Life is governed by either self or spirits. When you understand it's governed by spirits, it's freedom. You have freedom in Christ. He said this, life governed by the flesh is driven by desire, which will eventually destroy us. It was interesting. We're going to look at some of that today. We're going to kind of go back and see what does he mean by that it's going to destroy us. But a life governed by the Spirit produces freedom, and that is freedom in Jesus. And we looked at this statement, no condemnation, no condemnation in Christ Jesus because of what he's done for us on the cross, saying, if you say yes to me, you have life in life to its fullest. What we're going to do, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, I just want to read the passage again. I know the video did. I love kind of starting with this. And then where we're going to go from there, we're going to blanket this sermon with an overall uh, kind of theme. And we're going to try to go as fast as we can through five things that I think are very important, okay? Very important to you understanding what that blanket term is all about. But let's start in the passage and then we'll go from there. Romans 8, 12 through 17 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. If you write notes, I would have you write this down. The first thing is this. This is kind of the overarching. Life is belonging to God's family. Life is 
belonging to God's family. Life is all about living in this new identity, this identity of belonging. We belong in his family if we've said yes to Jesus. And here's what I know about human nature, okay? Because I myself am a human, and I feel this tension, that we all want to belong somewhere. We all have an inner inner want to belong in a circle of friends or a circle over here or a circle over here. Maslow's hierarchy of need, if you went to school at all or, you know, in college, I know I talked about this in psychology classes, but Maslow's hierarchy of need basically is there's a pyramid. There's five levels of needs that every human has. And the third one is love and belonging. It's just something that we are driven towards. We want, we're all about. I was watching a movie two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago with my wife, and it's called Wonder. They may see Wonder, the movie. It's also a book, okay? And if you've never watched this movie, there's a kind of screenshot of a scene in the movie. If you've never seen this movie, okay, one of the action points for today going home, rent it, Amazon Prime, Netflix, you've got to watch it. And I'm serious. If you have middle school, high school students, you have to have them watch it with you. It is a powerful movie, okay? And I'll explain kind of what's going on, but that is one of the action points today, okay? It made me emotional. Only two movies in my life made me emotional, this movie and Lord of the Rings, okay? But <laughs> seriously, it's an, it's an interesting movie, and it, it's powerful in the drama that it sets place. But you see in this picture, there's a kid that the movie is based around, and his name is August, and they call him Augie for short. And Augie has a um, facial, um, he's just, he doesn't look the same as every other kid. And so he's had 27 surgeries, 27 different surgeries that have created this facial deformity uh, on him. And basically what's happened is the surgeries have allowed him to live and to breathe and to kind of function, but his face kind of coming out of that doesn't look maybe like a normal kid his age, uh, their face. And so what you see in the story is he is fifth grade, he's about to go into middle school, and his parents have homeschooled him his entire life because they didn't want him to have to face what kids might say about him and his facial deformities. And so we see in the movie that at this point in his life, his parents are like, it's time for you to, to go to school. Now, I don't know why now is the time to go to school in middle school, because we all know middle school is harsh and brutal, but in the movie, it's based on, or inspired, I should say, by a true story. It's not based on a true story, but inspired. He goes to middle school. And what happens is this, that he walks into the middle school, and his facial deformities bring attention to him. And every kid, fifth through eighth grade, starts to stare at him. They start to look at him. They start to kind of talk, you know, on the side, like, who is this kid? What is he here for? What is going on? What's wrong with his face. He gets into his class. Immediately, there's bullying, making fun of, calling names, and he goes throughout school, sits at lunch by himself. All the fears that he had about entering middle school and am I going to belong came true. No, you do not. And there's a scene that this picture portrays after the first day of school. He comes home, and his parents are like, how'd it go? They're, they're like, how was it? So excited. Maybe it went well. Maybe he made a friend, and he said it was fine. If you're a parent in the room, you know fine means it was awful, right? You know it was awful. Gets emotional. He starts yelling at his parents, not because of their fault, but just like kids or anybody does, he's got to let loose. And he goes up to his room, and this is the scene. He's talking to his mom, and he says, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. Kids think I'm ugly. Teachers think I'm ugly. They call me ugly. I must be ugly. And his mom, Isabel, says this, you are not ugly, Augie says in true kid form, you are just saying that because you're my mom. And she says this, hone in, this is where I want to start. Because I'm your mom, it counts the most. 
because I know you the most. Listen, I think, I think that we walk in here and some of us are like Augie. We're like, I have all these deformities. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you walk in and you're like, I don't know if I belong. I don't know if I belong in church, much less the rest of what life brings at me. And I think God has brought us into the seating and he's just like that kneeling at our bedside and saying, I want to show you what it truly means to belong. I want you to know what it means to belong in my family. And he's going to sit us down and belong. What's it mean to belong in my family? And there's five powerful things, very powerful things that he's going to show us through this text, through Paul writing to the Roman church. J.I. Packer has this quote. We're going to start with this and we'll get into the passage again. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he does not understand Christianity very well. This idea of being a child of God, I don't think is push enough in this understanding of the gospel. I think it's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm a child of God, right? We sing about it, it's awesome. But today, five things, like I said, five things that will help us hone in on this and hopefully walk out with understanding what that means. Romans 8, if you're there in your Bibles, that's great. We're going to jump around a little bit. But the first thing I want you to write down, because I belong, okay, if you're taking notes, because I belong, I have a new identity. Because I belong, I have a new identity. In verses 14 through 16, we see Paul kind of go through there, and he kind of spouts off different identifiers of who we are in Christ. We're children of God. We are adopted into a sonship. And then he goes again, God's children. We'll cry out, Abba, Father. We have this new identity from the new standing that Adam talked about last week. Because we have freedom in Christ, because we have freedom from what Jesus did, we now have a new position, a new position as God's children. And Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are children of God. Now here, I want your eyes up here. Here's what's interesting. Not everybody's a child of God. In our world today, not every human being is a child of God. It can be a misconceived idea of what it means to be a child of God. Just because you were created by God doesn't mean you're a child of God. And sometimes that's hard for the ears. You're like, what? Doesn't he love everybody? Yes, he does. But Paul states, and we're going to look back in the book of John, Jesus talking about this. And this is what he says in John 1, 12. This is what it means. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, John writes. We see that you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit lives inside of you, and then you're adopted as a child of God, as a son of God. It is that process. It is not everybody's born is a child of God. We got to start there. So if we don't start there, we have a misconceived idea that everybody is a child of God, and it might be hard for our ears to hear. We have to say yes to Jesus, the Spirit lives inside of you, you're adopted as a son, you become a child of God. Of God. He says in verse 15, uh, Paul does, when you receive the Spirit, you're adopted into the family as a son. Now, there's two very important things I want to mention about kind of his wordage there. The first thing is this. He says just son. If you read the passage, it's not son and daughter. 
And I wanted to make this known because sometimes it'd be like, why'd he just say son? Right? If we're children of God, why didn't he just say son and daughters? That doesn't make sense. But if you look back at the culture and the time that he's writing and the people he's writing to, the sonship of that time and that uh, time period was very important. The firstborn son right, was the one that carried on the name. The firstborn son was the one that had the inheritance. The firstborn son was the heir. And so it is not, for you ladies, it's not a demotion to be said to adopt it into a sonship. Rather, it's a promotion for all of us. The promotion for all of us, he's saying that I have adopted you as my sons, and you get everything that comes along with that. And Paul's writing to a culture where that firstborn son would have got, got a lot. There's a lot involved in being adopted as a son that we're going to look at. And think of it just like this. Just like the church is called the bride of Christ, right? Called sons of God. It's just an illustration to bring a deeper point to understanding what that means. And trust me, as you look at this, you'll understand why he used that lingo because it's very powerful. And that's the second thing. The second thing is this, that to understand where we're going with this, we have to understand this whole idea of where Paul's writing into. Okay, Paul's writing into a Roman culture, the church of Rome that's saying they're writing into a Roman culture that was reading all of this identifier and understanding adoption in a unique way. So this is what adoption would have been looked like in the Roman culture. First off is most likely, most likely someone to adopt a son, it would have been a wealthy man that didn't have maybe a son or an heir to the name. Okay, so it would have been a wealthy man that would have said, I want my name to continue. Maybe it's the family business, maybe my inheritance, whatever it may be. I want it to continue. And so I'm going to adopt a son so that that continues, my name continues. And this is what oftentimes would happen. That man, that wealthy man would go to the slave yard or go to the servants and say, I'm going to adopt a son from here. I'm going to free someone from their slavery and take them from the slave yard. They're free now. And I'm going to walk them to the courthouse and I'm going to bring them into the courthouse and adopt them officially as my son. He is my son now. Goes from slave to son, just like that. And what would happen in that day and age, these are the four things What I'm going to say next. You can write, I would write them down. I'm just a history buff. I would write them down, and it, it gives power to the image of God adopting us into a sonship. These are the things that would happen immediately when that paper was signed and he adopted him. First thing is this, old debts and legal obligations were paid. Everything that this servant, everything the slave, gone paid for. He doesn't have to worry. No baggage anymore. The, the chains are off. The second thing is this. New name was acquired. Instantly an heir of all the father had. Can you imagine that? You go from a slave, you go from a servant, you have no family to all of a sudden you now have a name that has a lot of weight to it and now you carry that name and you have the heirship to everything that the new father has given you. Third, father became instantly liable for all his actions. Anything the son did, anything the son did, it was on the father now. It's not just on the son, it's on the father. And so he took that liability. The fourth thing is new son had new obligations to honor and please the father. That will make more sense as we trek through this passage. But now because he is called son and he has a father, the obligation is I'm going to live my life honoring, respecting what the father is all about. 
and he is my father now. So I want to live for him. And the interesting thing is, with us as humans, originally, originally we were all spiritual orphans and slaves. That's where we start. We're all born into this world as sinners. We're all slaves to sin. And so originally, we are spiritual orphans and slaves, and God initiated, it was a legal act. Like, it was a legal act that this, this man would go and become the father of the son. Like He pursued and God initiated that in us by sending his son, Jesus, to this earth to take the penalty for our sins so that we could say yes to him and become children of God. He initiated it out of his love and grace and sacrifice, and it cost him a ton to adopt us. I think this is one of the most overlooked pictures of the gospel. That should just blow our mind. Now listen, it should blow our mind for multiple reasons. The thing that I found interesting, and I was reading, I don't know, it was a book or commentary, that Jesus is God's one and only son. God sent his only son so that we could all become sons and heirs with Jesus. He didn't have to do it. He didn't need to do it. He had a perfect relationship going on in heaven. And then he said, I want to pursue each and every one of you to become a son, become a child of God. It should blow our minds. And so for some of you, we, ha- we have to start here. We have to start with the question, are you a child of God? Because the answer is not yes for everybody not just in this room, but across the world. Are you a child of God? Because here's the thing, because if you are not, you're a slave to sin, you are standing in that slave yard, in your sin currently, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, maybe it's that sexual sin that you're hiding, maybe it's the sin over here, whatever it may be, you're standing in that sin. And Jesus walked into the slave yard by walking onto this earth and taking the cross and saying, I am came to free you. I came to free you. And I want to take you out of this slave yard. You say yes to me, we can walk out. But here's the powerful thing. We don't just walk out and it's like, cool, now you do what you want. I want to walk, personally walk you over to the courthouse and I'm going to adopt you as a son. That should, that should strike us. And for some of you, you're like, okay, what does that mean for me? It starts by saying yes to Jesus. That's where it starts. For some of you today, that's, that's the realization of, I'm not a child of God yet, and I need to say yes to Jesus. And these next few things that we're going to walk through, if you are a child of God, this is what comes with belonging to the family of God. They're powerful things. And if you are not, you've not said yes to Jesus yet, I want you to hone in because these are some really cool things that come along with being a part of God's family. So the first thing is we have a new identity we have a new identity, a new position in the family. The second thing is this. If you're a child of God, because I belong, I have a new power. Belonging to the family of God means I am led by the Spirit. So this new power allows us to kind of crush sin in a sense, defeat sin. Now here's another bubble burster for you. Today's just one of those days, right? Sin lives inside all of us, whether you have said yes to Jesus or not whether you have said yes to Jesus or not. It's been defeated, but it still lives in us. You know this to be true, and I know this to be true. Like, it's just a part of life. Even if you're following Jesus, you're like, oh, today was a rough day. 
right? It was a sin. It's just part of it. And Paul talks about this in verses 12 and 13. We'll take a look at that. We'll flesh out what this means. Therefore, brothers, in verse 12, he says, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is what he's saying. You need to understand that sin, okay, defeated on the cross, has not been destroyed in our life necessarily. Like it is still, there's temptations that we fall into sin, right? We need to run to Jesus with that. And this is what he's talking about. You need to put the misdeeds of the body, sin, to death. But here's oftentimes what we can do. Here's oftentimes what we can do with sin. Two things. One is we can just live in it. Okay, this is why it's so hard because as humans, we just kind of sometimes will live in it. You might be in this boat. I've been in this boat plenty of times before. We're like, it, yeah, it's sin, but it's not that bad, right? Or it can't be hurting anybody else, and so it's fine to do. Or you know what? It's just kind of the side thing I do over here, but mainly I'm over here. I had 10% this, 90% Jesus, 10% sleeping with whoever, 90% Jesus, 10% you know, getting drunk, 90% Jesus, whatever it may be. And you're like, oh, I can just live in it. It's interesting. I was watching a sermon and then read the article to this. But a pastor said he was reading an article that titled this, Pet Bear Kills Owner in Pennsylvania. Okay, I know you're all shocked by that, right? Pet Bear Kills Owner in Pennsylvania. The bear's name was Teddy. <laughs> Think about that, okay? And basically what happened in this article, as I read it from CNN, what happened was the lady who is the owner of the pet bear had a cage 16 foot by 16 foot, Okay, so it was a decent-sized cage where Teddy lived and housed at. So she went in one day, like any normal day, to feed Teddy. It's just weird saying Teddy, you know? It's just like, you're just like, what in the world? And clean his cage. So she fed him, and he's over here distracted. She's cleaning the cage. And all of a sudden, Teddy, who's a bear, 350 pounds, black bear, okay? Teddy went into bear mode, like you would assume, right? Teddy turned, killed owner, Everybody's like shocked by that. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, right? But bears are going to do what bears are going to do, right? She's like, yeah, he's caged and he's living with me. It's not going to ever attack me. And it did. And that's exactly what sin does to us. Sin is going to do what sin is going to do. That you live in it long enough, it's going to destroy you. Even if you like cage it up, you're like, oh, it's just over here for part of my life oh, it's just kind of what I do on the weekends, it's going to destroy you eventually. You've got to kill the bear. You've got to kill sin. It's a wild beast that will eventually destroy us. So that's one way of living. We can just live in it. It just is. The second way is we can cover it up. We can cover it up. We can cover it up with religion oftentimes. I'm a follower of Christ. This is the easiest thing to do. You walk in a church and you're like, well, no one knows really what what I did on the weekend, no one knows what's going on. I'll just cover what I'm doing, right? It's like, it's like having that bear in the cage and putting a tarp over it. It's not really here. It's not really, nothing's back there. You can't, nope, don't go look over there. Nothing's happening, right? And you cover it up. And we assume that good works, religion, coming to church, we're doing all those things. And this can be for a follower of Christ or not. That's just going to make a difference. So we can live in these two ways. And it's interesting because John Owen quoted like this. This is where I want to go with this, this understanding. You must always be killing sin or it will be killing you, said John Owen. Literally, the only way you should live is by putting the sin on the chopping block and taking the axe to it every single day. You need to cut it. You need to kill it. It needs to be dead. Now, Paul writes in here, he says, 
You got to put the misdeeds of the body to death, okay? And then he says you have an obligation to live to it. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? He's live to the spirit. Live to what Adam was talking about last week. And where does that obligation come from? I think it's important. I was honed in onto this word. And I'm like, I could just speak on this word the whole sermon. It was so powerful to me. It created a different understanding. I think this obligation to live to it comes from two things. One is the freedom in Christ that we have, the no condemnation anymore, that we have gratitude and love for what Jesus did for me, that I'm willing to live my life and serve him in everything I do. But I think the second obligation to live to the Spirit, not to my flesh, is family. Is family. And that's what this passage is talking about, that we are a part of an adoption, and now we are obligated, just like, just like in the Roman culture, that fourth point They're obligated to honor and respect the Father, that we're obligated now to honor and respect God, our Heavenly Father. Listen, as as followers of Christ, and I've done this so many times, you can feel kind of guilted into doing things, right? There's kind of like this guilt pull of like, oh, I'm following Christ, I got to do this thing for him, I got to obey, I can't do this, I can't do that, but I can do this, right? And I think what Paul is saying is, no, 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 this power comes from understanding your freedom and your family to live obligated to honor and respect God, to not pursue sin, to kill that, to put it away and to pursue living for him and serving him and living on mission for him. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Some applicable things here. We got to focus on Christ. We grow in our gratitude and love. Couple things. First thing is this, you got to resist sin by focusing on the Spirit. You resist sin by focusing on the spirit. Put it to death. You got to kill it. Kill that bear. Resist that bear. Resist the sin by focusing on the spirit and what the spirit wants you to live for. You know, focus on the mission. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the gospel. Focus on what he's done for us. The second thing is apply the gospel by following the spirit. Apply the gospel by following the spirit. This has to be at the forefront of fighting sin. So how do we practically do that? I wish I had more time to spend on these five points, but I don't, so I'm going to kind of breeze through them, but I would love for you to write them down. Apply the gospel. How do I practically kind of run, kill sin, apply the gospel? First is this. You got to recognize, recognize, recognize the sin that is still alive in you. If you don't recognize, you're not going to be able to move forward. Like, oh, that's not in me. That's not, I'm not suffering from that. I'm not struggling with that. You got to recognize. Then you repent. You got to confess that sin in your life. You got to run to God. And I would say, I would say, and you got to use wisdom with this, but you got to run to others. Like people around, you got to repent to those around you. People have to be in that confession. Refocus is the third thing. So you go recognize, repent, refocus, refocus on the gospel, the scriptures, on, on the cross, memorize scripture maybe, refocus. The fourth thing is restore. Restoration happens when you refocus. A restoration of the relationship with the Spirit. And then replace. You have to replace the flesh with the Spirit. You have to replace it. You have to make sure that, that as you navigate life, you're like, nope, I know this is going to happen over here. I'm going to replace it with the Spirit. I'm going to replace it with things that are pointing me towards God, pointing me towards the cross, pointing me towards living this life of honor and respect for my Father. And so I'm not even going to go there with it. Those are five just kind of simple things that you can walk through in your brain of, okay, how do I navigate that? That's a sermon in and of itself. But that, that understanding, we have power 
to kill sin because we are now a part of the family of God. This power through Jesus and what he's done for us, not ourselves. Listen, it's not like us going out like, huh, it's Jesus. What he's done for us, what he's given us, and now we're adopted and we have this power to say we can live in the spirit, not of flesh. The next thing I would have you write down is because I belong, I have a new security. Because I belong, I have a new security. So we have this power, because this, we've got this new identity, this power, the next three things are written out in these passages of understanding what it means to be a child of God. The spirit of adoption provides security. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he says uh, kind of shockingly, maybe not shockingly, but interestingly, uh, the similar kind of passage that he's writing here in Romans. It says this, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Interesting that the language is very similar. Like Paul is almost writing like the same thing to this church. And what he wants us to see, he uses this term not only in Galatians, but in Romans, that we are no longer slaves, that we're sons. There needs to be a security in that. First, I would have you write this down, a security in whose I am. A security in whose I am. If you said yes to Jesus, the Spirit lives inside of you, you are a child of God, you can be secure in that. Secure in His love. Listen, I'm a no illusion that this conversation can bring up situations that maybe some of you had in the past of earthly fathers. Maybe some of you grew up with fathers that weren't present, that were abusive, that didn't care, didn't love, and this brings up a lot of different thoughts for you. This might. And God is here saying, no, 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 when you say yes to me, you can be secure in my love. You don't have to act. You don't have to do good enough. You don't have to do something for me. You're secure in my love because I love you. I've sent my son for you. You need to know that. Secure in the sonship because I'm no longer a slave a slave this anymore. I can be secure that I'm his son, his child. And I know that secure in the constant reassurance that we're part of the family, secure in the protection that he gives us. There's a security being a part of the family of God. He's going to protect us. Why would I fear humans? Why would I fear this life? Why would I fear others? Like I am protected. Not that everything's going to go like happy-go-lucky all the time, like we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about suffering next week, okay? And so not everything in life is going to be great, but we know that God is going to protect us. And we also have an eternal security, which I can't get into this deeply, but we have eternal security, so we don't have to keep asking Jesus into our heart when we mess up. Like he loves us enough. Let me give you an image or a picture. So when I was a senior in high school, 
my sister was a freshman in high school, okay? So I'd been there for a few years. She hopped in. It was awesome. We walked into school uh, at the same time the first day. You know, mom's all like, oh, look at that, you know? But we walked in, and I played football, okay? And so the, it was the first week. It had to have been the first week of school. I was walking down after the bell rang for the last class, and it's all out. Everybody got their book bags. I'm walking down the football hallway to the locker room, and I see, I think they're freshman guys. So same grade as my sister up against the, against the wall, and they know that I'm Rachel's sister, okay? They know that I, or I'm her brother. Sorry, she's my sister. Man, don't put this on, online, okay? Um, but uh, that I am her brother, and they said something to me about her. It wasn't derogatory necessarily, but they said something to me, and I turned to them, and I look them dead in the face, and I said this, if you talk to my sister... I will kill you. And I walked away. Okay? Now, now, before you like condemn me, okay, that's not the best way to share Jesus' love with people that don't know Jesus. Okay? So I'm not condoning that part. What I'm saying though is this as a senior in high school, I wanted to make sure my sister felt secure in being a part of the high school world. And so jokingly, I would never do that, of course, but I wanted her to be secure knowing that my brother is going to watch out for me. My brother is going to protect me. My brother is here for me. Like, I don't have to worry about him like walking and on the other side of the hall, like, oh my gosh, there's my sister. Like, he knows. And that's exactly kind of what God's saying. It's not a perfect illustration. He says, I want you to know that I'm here for you. I'm not going to leave you. You can walk into this world confidently. You don't have to be scared. I'm going to protect you. Know my love is with you. Know that you have an eternal security. I'm present. And then second, what I would write down is this. Security in who I am. When you know whose you are, you know who you are, and it will, it will show you what to do. Okay, it's a big, big kind of tra- trajectory there. But security in who I am. God is our Father, and He's our Creator, and He created each and every one of us individually. Create each and every one of us to be uh, gifted and talented in different ways. You know whose you are. You'll know who you are and what to do in this life, that you live for Jesus' mission, and that will flesh out in a lot of different ways, depending on your gifts and talents. He wants you to be secure in that. Spirit adoption guarantees security that only God can provide. The next thing I would write down is this. I have a new intimacy Because I belong, I have a new intimacy. In verse 15, we see that Paul writes, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. He's talking about this intimacy that this phrase has. Of all the different phrases for Father, different words for Father, this one in the Aramaic has the most intimacy connected to it. It means Daddy. It means Daddy. He's saying you're crying out, Daddy, Father in heaven. That is what you're doing. And if you cry that out, you can be secure in your relationship with God. And that's important to know. If you're crying that out, you can be secure in your relationship with God because you know who your father is. In Mark 14, we see in verses 35 and 36, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to the cross. And he's in this very stressful moment where he's in the garden and he's praying and he's praying there and he's asking God, what is your will with this? Because it's going to be painful, it's going to be hard, I understand, I know that I'm going to follow your will, but why? And this is how the passage goes. 
Verse 35 and 36, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. It says in the scriptures and, and scholars, he was sweating blood. Like that's how stressful the situation was. If you can imagine not only the physical pain, but the spiritual weight that is going to weigh on him carrying all of our sins. He's sweating blood. And it says this, Jesus, 36, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen, there is an intimacy that gives us assurance and trust that we can run to our Father and he's going to care and love for us. Just like Jesus, his son ran to him in his most stressful, intense situation that each and every one of us, that should be the response because we have a daddy in heaven who cares. But he also cares enough, this is important, he also cares enough to push us. He didn't say to Jesus, you know what, you're right. You're really stressed out. I'll take the cross from you. You're right. Don't worry about it. No, no. He said, nope, this is my will. This is my will so that everybody else gets a chance at freedom and family. So God in heaven, our daddy in heaven, is going to care and love us and yet push us. I saw my earthly father do this. I came home from football practice the first day as a, a little freshman, and I said to him, I'm not going back. I don't know anybody. I'm scared. It's intimidating. There's seniors there. They want to pummel me. Like, I'm nervous. And this is what he said, do I love you? I care about how you're feeling. I care that you're struggling with this. Let's sit down and talk about it. But he pushed me. He said, you're going back tomorrow. I'm like, I don't want to. You're going back tomorrow. The next day you're going to go back. The next day you're going to go back. And eventually I became the senior captain on the football team. He kept pushing me. And that's exactly, exactly what our God in heaven is doing with us. When you run to him, expect him to care and love, but expect him to push. Expect him to push you along to the mission that he's called you to. The last thing I would say is this. Because I belong, I have a new inheritance. I got to fly through this one. I have a new inheritance. Okay, if you see in the culture that we just talked about with the adoption of a son, okay, the inheritance was a really big thing. Okay, it's a big conversation uh, in that Roman culture because there wanted to be a name attached that could carry on the name, maybe the family business, the wealth, all that was attached to it. So inheritance was a big conversation when he was writing this out. And what Paul says in this passage is that we're children of God, and now that we're adopted in the sonships, we're all heirs. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That should blow our minds. It should blow our minds. A pastor named J.D. Greer writes it like this. He, uh, he gets to travel around, speak at different places, interact with different people. And so he's interacting with one of the uh, wealthiest man's grandson, okay? He's kind of coming from the perspective of, man, it would be awesome to be in this relationship, a friendship with him. He says this, I get to be around some interesting people, and I was at an event once where I met the son of a guy who was the grandson of America's wealthiest businessman. I'll admit I just wanted to be friends, he said, just so I could eat the crumbs that fell off his table. He's thinking this. He's like, we can't use our Super Bowl tickets this year, this wealthy guy would say to him, and uh, you want them? Here's a jet the family can't use anymore. You want it? That's what he's hoping for. And then he ends, he says, but he doesn't even return my text. He wants to be in this airship with this wealthy guy on this earth. And then he goes on to say this, what if 
what if I found out I'd be a co-heir with him? Be crazy. But in Christ, you get so much more. Forget the Super Bowl tickets. You're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Forget his jet, because you'll fly with the angels. Forget his mountain uh, cabin. You've got a mansion prepared with the streets of gold. There's so much more to look forward to as an heir of God and the family of God. Now, here's the thing. As I was reading this, I don't know about you. I love reading the Bible because it just blows me to pieces, all that's packed in it. But here's a fascinating thing. God did not need another heir. One and only son, Jesus. Right? Things were going well. Created the earth, created the world, created the universe, created everything to be. Things are going well. And yet, he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son so that we could say yes to Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He said, I rise again, rose again, believe in me, you have a relationship with me so that we could be heirs alongside of Jesus. That should just blow our minds and shock us. God says, I want you to be up here with me. I want you to be present with me. I want you to be in a relationship with me. I want you. And I will give you a ton. I'll give you gifts. I, I will give you all this as an inheritance. It should blow our minds. It should blow our minds. I think it's so powerful, this image of what God has done by sending Jesus and inviting us to be adopted as sons. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? First thing is this. Like I said before, first question I would ask yourself, are you or am I a child of God? You have to start there. You have to start there. Your identity has to, I am a child of God. Are you? Have you said yes to Jesus? Just like the illustration, back in the Roman culture, in your sin, you're in that slave yard. You're in that slave market where you're just standing there and you're in the slave of sin. You're slavery to your sin. And Jesus came down 2,000 years ago. He said this, I love you. I want to point you to the Father in heaven. And I came to die for your sins, to die for you so that you could live with me in eternity, but also you could have a purpose and meaning on this earth. For some of us, we're still standing in that slave yard. We're controlled by sin. And today is the day that you say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to follow you. I want to say yes to you. And what Jesus will do is he'll walk you out of there. By saying you say, yes, I want to follow you. And he'll walk you in the courthouse and adopt you as a son. That's where something you need to start. You start by saying, yes, Lord, I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I need you. And I want to say yes to you each and every day. For some of you, you've said yes to Jesus. You are a child of God. And the question is this, are you living as a child of God? Are you living as a child of God? As I walked through that, it blew my mind of understanding the pieces that came under that identifier. Like, are you living in that identity? For some of us, we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a child of God. I'm not sure. I don't know whose I am or who I am. I didn't realize I'm a son of God. I didn't know what this means for me. And you're blown away just by the gratitude and the love for who God is. For some of you, for some of you, it starts with the sin that you are battling and giving into. It starts there. You're living in it or you're covering it. Well, no one will know if I do this or it feels so good. I just want to do 
this. And your whole life you've been covering and you're trying and it starts there by saying, I'm obligated, not guilt-driven. Listen, that's a, it's big to know. Obligated to live out of the freedom in the family that I'm in by saying yes to Jesus. It starts there. It starts there. For others of us, it starts with security. Yep, I am a child of God. I'm secure in that relationship. Maybe some of you had earthly fathers that were toads, that, that just didn't care, didn't love, and you're like, that's hard for me to sit upon. Like, he left us. Why would I sit upon that? I'm not secure in anything that he shared with me. And yet God says, I'm the perfect heavenly father that wants a relationship with you. Be secure in my love. Be secure in my protection. Be secure in my grace. Be secure in what Jesus did for you. For others, it's the intimacy. You start running to God, daddy crying out. And for others, it's just praising God for the inheritance that you get. But for all of us, I think it leaves us with an action point here. For all of us, especially those, I would say those who have said yes to Jesus are a child of God, are you making your heavenly father make sense to kids and students? Are you making your heavenly father make sense to kids and students? And I would say kids and students that don't have a father, that don't have a mother, what would that look like? Let's just get real applicable that there are kids back there, empower kids that come to student ministries here that do not have a good representation of God, their father in heaven, from their earthly father. They don't know Jesus. They, they have not a relationship with Jesus. And here's the challenge, that we would take what we understand about belonging in God's family, and we would say, we want everybody, we especially want kids and students to understand that and to feel it and to experience it. What if, what if we served back in power kids? What if we served in student ministries so they'd be surrounded by multiple men and women that expressed God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and mercy in their life so they could get a picture of their God in heaven that's accurate? What if you did something with the city, the community of Barberton, the schools, and said, I'm gonna run after students and kids that do not know Jesus and do not know what a uh, heavenly father looks like? Guys in the room, I'm going to press you a little bit. I'm also a guy, so I can do that, okay? Press you a little bit. What if you said, I'm going to serve Empower Kids and Student Ministries? Because I think something that lacks oftentimes is students and kids seeing earthly men, earthly men that are following Jesus. Like, well, that's kind of what my wife does, or that's kind of what, you know, the women, they, they take care of the kids, and no, 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 no. It's men surrounding kids and students with the love of a father. What if? What if that was really applicable? Now, ladies, it's also the same for you. Pursuing, loving others. What if you got involved that way? Just think of the power that would infuse into people and kids' lives. So we're going to end there. We belong in family of God. For some of you, response is saying yes to Jesus. For some of you, it's living that out. For all of us, where can we start loving those around us, that are kids and students, our families, friends, schools, here at church? What would that look like? What would that look like? Why don't you pray with me?